Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 5. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. And let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Then I'd invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. The sermon text this evening is going to be verses 5 through 8. But the first few verses of Revelation 21 help to give us some of the context here. So Revelation 21 verses 1 through 8. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life Freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let us pray again before we consider it further. 
Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we ask that your word would be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We pray that your word would guide us into all truth and that we would love that truth with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. In the days when the prophet Daniel lived, he lived in Babylon with King Nebuchadnezzar, who had a dream. There was no wise man in the entire Babylonian empire that could interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Only Daniel could do so. And Daniel explains then the vision and the meaning of that vision to the king. Daniel makes very clear that the meaning of that vision was given to him by the Lord God of Israel. And this happens twice in Daniel, in chapter 2 and chapter 4. If we go many centuries earlier, Joseph being sold by his brothers into slavery and he's in prison. Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker had dreams in the night that troubled them greatly. And Joseph is the one who explains to them their vision and then later explains to them the vision of Pharaoh as well. Now consider what we have just read in Revelation chapter 21. Here again we find a vision, this time to John on the island of Patmos. And it's a vision of the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, It's the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven. But this time there is no mystery about this particular vision. We don't need someone like Daniel or Joseph to explain to us what uh, might seem like a confusing vision. No, we understand what is being portrayed here. It is a vision of our future home. And as our home is described, we find a declaration here, and we're going to begin at verse 5, where God himself speaks to the truthfulness of this vision to us. He wants to reassure us that this is true. So it is our God who speaks from his throne to tell us what is true and then how to respond to that truth. So we're going to consider this evening these verses from Revelation 21, verses 5 to 8. First, that God declares all things new. Second, the heritage for conquerors. And then third, the portion for unbelievers. To begin, I want you to have more of this visual picture from the end of Revelation. And we're going to back up just a little bit before chapter 21. Because in chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, we see there a picture of Satan being cast by God into the lake of fire and sulfur. To a place where he will be tormented rather than being our tormentor. Following that vision, then in verses 11 to 15 of chapter 20, there's a second picture. It's of judgment day where all the living and the dead will be raised and be judged before God's throne. Every one of their deeds will be judged. The book of life will be opened, and the names of those that are saved in Christ will be revealed, while unbelievers will be cast into the lake of fire with the devil. Then a third picture, uh, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 21. These are verses that we read where we see the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven. And verse 4, this beautiful picture in which God himself wipes every tear from the eyes of his people. 
So I want you to get a sense, a a feel for what we're hearing, these end-time visions of what will come when Jesus returns to earth. And so when we come then to verse 5, we have this picture of God, the one who sits on the throne. It's a picture of God's throne room, and this is what he is declaring to be true. All these images of the end, about judgment day, the new heaven and the new earth. Now it's the king who is going to speak. Now if you want a better picture for what this throne room looks like, you can go back to chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. And there's a very beautiful and rich picture of God's throne room there where the 24 elders and the four living creatures never cease to fall down before the throne and say, Holy, Holy, Holy. In chapter 4, verse 5, it describes there this throne in which there's flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. There's the seven lamps. In verse 6, there's the sea of crystal before the throne. Verse 3 describes that there's a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And I could go on, but I would encourage you in your own time, read chapter 4 to hear more about what God's throne looks like. So, in a sense, we're fast-forwarding then into chapter 21, verse 5, where God now speaks from His throne, and here's what He has to say. He says, Right, for these words are true and faithful. God is telling John that these righteous and perfect words are meant to be recorded. They're meant for believers to read, not just in John's day, but for us as believers as well. And he wants us to know that his words are genuine. They are reliable. They are certain. And they're certain because God himself is certain. All that we just talked about, Judgment Day, the Book of Life, the New Jerusalem, all of it is true and certain. And to draw this out more, look at verse 6 where it says, He says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In other words, because God has said it, it is true, it is decided, it is determined, this will happen. So, just as surely as God at the creation of the world said, let there be light, and there was light. Or when God declares, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, and it is true. Now, God is saying to us, this also is just as true. It is done. I am the Omega, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The infinite, eternal, sovereign God who rules over all things. He's telling you this is true. This is what the end looks like. After you die and after the resurrection of the dead, this is it. This is your life. So then we learn a little bit more about what this will look like. The certainty of God's word. He says, behold, I make all things new. And I take that statement to be something of a summary statement there of all the new things that we were just talking about, about Judgment Day and the resurrection of the dead, the book of life, the new Jerusalem. That is done. That is certain. But he's saying all things, everything we could possibly think of, it is 
all new. Not just personally ourselves that we have a new body without sin, but all of it, all of the universe is new. A completely new creation. It's hard to gain perspective on this. If you think about this moment in time, we really are just in the smallest of blips of world history. Who really in 50 or 100 years is going to be thinking about today? Or the people gathered in this room? Today is February 16, 2020. Just think about all that might be noted today in in the world news or in church worship services, the meals and conversations you have with family and friends, all that makes today what it today is. It's going to pass away. It's going to be forgotten. Psalm 103 says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and the place knows it no more. Our time on this earth is so short. While God is saying, I am eternal. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I don't want to let this go. I want to develop this a little more for you. If you go back a hundred years, February 16, 1920, can you think of anything that happened on that day? I couldn't. I looked it up. And according to uh, the website I looked at, the one significant thing that happened on this day was that the Allies agreed to Berlin's offer to try World War I criminals in Leipzig, Germany. Right now, just saying that, doesn't that sound insignificant to you? Does that fact change your life in any way? Who can name even one other thing that happened 100 years ago? Ecclesiastes 1 verse 11 There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Our time on this earth, it's so short, it's so quick. So there's the contrast, right? To what we're reading in these pages. God, the eternal God from His throne, He's telling you, this time is short, but this is the time ahead when I am going to make all things new in a way that you can't even possibly imagine in all its detail. It will all be new and it will last and last forever. God in His Word, with His Word, guarantees all things new. So unlike our flesh which perishes so quickly, God, the Alpha and the Omega, is telling us what will be. What a special thing as we think about it, to assure us of this new creation that God promises to us. At present, we live by faith and not by sight. We are being called in these verses to believe and to trust what God says is true of what He will do. Now, as we continue to look at these verses, there's not just this overall new creation that's certain, but also it begins to become rather personal again as we see God telling us about our place, our personal place in the midst of these eternal things that we've been talking about. And that's what we're going to look at in verses 6 and 7, the second part of verse 6 and then 7, where we see the heritage that's promised to the conquerors, that is, to those who keep the faith, or as it says in verse 5, to the overcomers. 
So, um, just as in verse 4 we saw there, uh, God wipes away the tears from the eyes of His people. Now in verses 6 and 7, we see this personal and intimate place where He says in verse 6, To those who are thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Here's the fulfillment of passages in Isaiah chapter 49. That says there that they shall no longer hunger or thirst. Isaiah chapter 55, which we read, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Isn't that interesting? In verse 6 of Revelation, the only requirement for drinking is if you're thirsty. God says to the thirsty, I will give to drink from the spring of the water of life. Do you want to live? Do you want to drink the water of life that will renew your soul? To live in a world without our bodies increasingly aging and full of aches and pains. Here is the true fountain of youth. A spring which gives life-giving water without payment. It is by grace. God freely gives this to us, not by our own works. In the Gospel of John, Jesus tells the woman at the well, He has a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Later in John 7, verse 37, Jesus publicly declares, He says, If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. So our passage in Revelation, it does not explicitly mention Jesus, but clearly it is Christ as the one who is offering this living water. Verse 7 then begins, The one who overcomes will inherit all things. Well, the only way to overcome is to persevere in faith. In Jesus Christ, to continue to believe that Jesus can offer what he's offering to us. Not in our own efforts or our own works can we conquer, but only through Jesus. Not if you try a little harder, perform harder, become more determined. That's not what we believe. We believe in salvation by grace. That God gives us this living water that we could never earn. Free of charge by our generous God, the God of the universe. So here's the promise for those who persevere, who keep the faith in Christ. Life-giving water, never to thirst again. If you imagine yourself, if you've ever imagined this, that you were in a dry, hot, dusty desert... There's no available water as far as the eye can see. Well, then how much more would you appreciate a cold drink of water? Maybe even if you're just in a hot room without any air conditioning, a cup of cold water would taste pretty good. And then you think about this world. It's marked by suffering and death. There's not always such a great place to go to be refreshed by what the world has to offer You can think of billionaires. They would probably give large sums of money to gain just five more years of good health in which to enjoy all their money. 
What would they pay for that? And now here God is offering freely what can't be bought. No payment to those who conquer. He's offering life and He's offering something to drink so we will never thirst again. The heritage for God's people, it is good and it is rich. It is the promise of a very good life for those who belong to Christ. And as we sometimes say in the, or hear in those infomercials, but wait, there's more. So let's go on. Verse 7, to those that conquer, it says that He will be their God and they will be His Son. In this way, we see then that we have a rightful place in God's family. So it's not just that we are wandering around in heaven, uh, wherever we care to go, and uh, we aren't thirsty anymore, and that's really nice. No, actually, it's talking about the fact that we belong to a family, that we are in an intimate connection with all of God's people, that God will call us His sons. Now, there's a couple details about this adoption that I'd like to cover with you this evening. And one detail is you'll note in this verse that it emphasizes their sons and doesn't say daughters. But uh, as we look elsewhere in Scripture, it makes clear that adoption is meant for both males and females, such as Galatians 3, verse 26, which also happens to use that term adoption as sons. And then Galatians 3, verse 28 says that there's no longer male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. So when it says sons in Revelation 21, verse 7, I think we are on solid ground to say that this is not gender-specific language, but it's meant to be adoption for all, for both male and female. Another detail about Adoption that I'd like to cover with you is that uh, the way it's worded in verse 7, it's really emphasizing that there's a, a future adoption. There's a real sense in which we will see this sonship before our God in heaven. But we should remember elsewhere from Scripture that our adoption is also a present reality. We don't have to wait to be adopted into God's family. If we believe in Christ, we're already a part of God's family. So we read this in Romans 8, verses 15 and 16, where it says, We have already received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So therefore, all those who look uh, in faith to Christ, those who are justified, were already adopted. Presently, we belong to God's family. And then, if we come back to our sermon text, to Revelation 21, verse 7, what that does for us is it shows that what's presently true about us is going to remain true when Christ returns. That when we have a heritage as conquerors, we will remain as members of God's family. To those who overcome, there will be a final unchangeable, immutable sense in which we will never be able to be threatened or think about not being part of God's family again. It's family privileges that we will enjoy more fully in heaven as God dwells with us in the new Jerusalem. As God our Father tends to our needs and concerns as a loving Father. 
I think this matches well with what Jesus says in John 14, verse 2, where he says his father's mansion has many rooms. And even now, he's preparing that mansion for us. Again, it's this idea that there's a family, a family home that we belong to, that we will live with our God. It's just a beautiful picture of what it means uh, when we think about uh, being a parent, even as earthly parents. When is a parent no longer a parent? You can't be fired from being a parent. You can't get traded to another team. You can't be voted out of office. A parent, you remain for your whole life. If your child is three hours old, if your child is three years old, even if your child is three decades old or more, you're still their parent. Even when that ch- a child leaves the family home and they, they go to school or they start a new job or whatever, no matter what, that son or the daughter remains a son or daughter to those parents. Even though there's ways that that relationship can change and grow over time. And I think we can say something similar in Revelation 21. We're talking here about a huge transition This is more than just a graduation ceremony. We're reading of a fact that the entire creation, all things are new. We are reading of a place where God's people will drink from the water of life. And then this thing, though, remains the same. The relationship itself remains the same, that he will be our God and we will be his children. So our heritage continues. The privilege of being in God's family, that will remain. He remains our Father, living in His mansion in the New Jerusalem. These are such beautiful words, such certain promises. And I will tell you that there's a part of me that would like to just end it right here. But we know that these verses aren't done. God has more to speak from His throne in verse 8. God will speak also as the righteous judge. In verse 8, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So as we hear these sobering words, and in one sense it's not shocking, this is not something new. All along in Scripture, God has spoken very clearly about judgment for sin. Earlier in the New Testament, there's similar lists of people who are unrighteous. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, it says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, not the sexually immoral, uh, nor idolaters, and so forth, and it continues with it lists. A list that looks actually pretty similar to Revelation 21, verse 8. Where you could look at Galatians uh, chapter 5, where there's the, the works of the flesh and then the fruit of the Spirit. And the works of the flesh are, again, a longer list of these things that look like Revelation 21, verse 8. There's something interesting, though. There's an interesting addition in verse 8. If you compare them... Because verse 8 adds, at the beginning, cowards and unbelievers to the list. It's, it's, it's a new thing compared to those other lists. 
And it's not new in that sense, like the Bible's been faithful to this, but it's showing that this is on a par to be sexually immoral and unrepentant for it. Cowards and unbelievers are part who will receive this judgment from God. And so I think it's fair for us to say that we see here the other side of perseverance. These verses are encouraging us to overcome and enjoy the benefits of God's great promises. But if you do not persevere in your faith, if you do not overcome, cowards and unbelievers are numbered among the other sinners. That whole group of idolaters, sorcerers, liars, sexually immoral. Whatever you consider to be the most evil, the most vile sins that you can think of and that people might be in prison for, if you are a coward, if you back away from faith in Christ, if you show yourself unfaithful, you are in the same place with that other group. There's no grading on a curve. There's no partial credit. There's either the promises of being in God's family or you have the portion of the wicked. It's the carrot and the stick. It's reward and judgment. There's no neutral category. The worst person you can think of that ever lived. If you don't have faith in Christ, you're in the same group with them on the final day. You either gain all the benefits we've been talking about or you lose everything. Brings to mind earlier places in Scripture when Moses, in his final address, addresses the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 30, before they enter the promised land, he tells them that he's setting before them life and death. He's setting before them blessing and curse, and he exhorts the Israelites to choose life. But if not, they will surely die. Or Joshua, at the end of Joshua 24, he exhorts Israel, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Or Elijah, who confronts Ahab and Israel with their great idolatry to Baal, and he says to them, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Or Jesus, one place in the gospel, says, You cannot serve both God and money. No one can serve two masters. So it has always been this way in Scripture. Either serve God and no other, or fall into some lesser idol and all the evil of this present darkness. So we come to our sermon text, to Revelation 21, verses 5 to 8. And this place in Scripture is presenting to you the same choice. You either conquer and overcome with Christ and remain faithful to him, or you are a coward and an unbeliever and you will join the rest of the wicked in eternal punishment with no middle ground. You either have God as your father, or you will be abandoned by God in hell forever. You either gain the water of life, or you will forever be parched of thirst in the lake of fire. It's a thirst so dry that when Jesus talks about it in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man, he's so tormented, he begs that Lazarus just dip his finger in the end uh, and then tip it to his 
tongue. That's hardly a refreshing drink. It's just the slightest easing of the torment of being in hell. Those are the two choices. They couldn't be more clear. You either have abundant living water or eternally suffer thirst, if that's even a choice. Choose this day whom you will serve. It's me speaking, but it's God in His Word who's putting before you this day life and death. Whom will you serve? Whom will you love? Now, as we continue to consider this very important choice, this decision between promise and judgment, I think it's important for us to clarify a bit more about what it means to be cowardly or faithless and unbelieving. Cowardly does not mean that you're shy or that you're socially reserved. It doesn't mean someone who never struggles with fears of others. Cowardly does mean someone who succumbs to the pressures of this world and they compromise and they walk away from faith in Christ. Likewise, unbelieving in verse 8, it, it does not mean someone who never struggles with doubt or someone who doesn't wrestle with assurance of their faith. It doesn't mean someone who struggles to be more faithful to God's law every day. Unbelieving here means you are empty of faith. You're not trying. You have walked away from the church and from Christ. And once you walk away from looking to Christ as your Savior, that is the thing for which there is no more remedy. There's no more cure. You're no longer under Christ's work of redemption. There's no second chance. This is the second death, as it says in verse 8. The cowardly and the unbeliever, they compromise with this world. They take what they can get out of this world at the price of denying Christ and walking away from Him. So we're not speaking here about a moment of weakness, such as Peter in his three denials, but rather this intentional choice to not look to Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 32, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And that's what's at stake as we come to Revelation 21 and really to the end of the Bible. God speaks from His throne and says, These words are trustworthy and true. If you care to, you can find books written by people who claim to be Christians, even today, that are beginning to deny the reality of hell. But I'm telling you, you look in God's Word, it could not be more clear that there is a hell. So with a choice so obvious, living water or dying of thirst, we have to ask ourselves, why would so many people reject Christ, reject this living water? And it comes down to pride in the, in the Gospel. Uh, we have to admit we're a sinner, we're, that we're a broken person. We have to confess that uh, we need the Lord, Jesus, to be the Lord of our life. The world says, follow your own heart. The Christian says, the heart is deceitful above all things. And the sin that resides there, it's so bad that I need help. I need Jesus' help. And God, when He 
works in our heart. He shows us Jesus. And as He works in our heart, we willingly turn to Christ. We accept Him as our Savior. It's as obvious then to us, once we are alive, to choose living water. So this evening I want you to hear this free offer of the Gospel. Many are called, but few are chosen. God is calling you to hear His Word today about your future. God declares from His throne, there's only two places you can go. Verse 8, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death, a permanent death, no more second chances. Or verse 7, a place in God's family. Verse 6, the spring of living water without payment. What will it be for you? What have you chosen for yourself? Choose this day whom you will serve, the living God or some false God. Choose Jesus, who offered the perfect sacrifice for sins on the cross and was raised from the dead. And the new life that he has, he offers to you. I urge you, God's word urges you to choose life and not death. Choose Christ and all the benefits of his salvation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for every listening ear in this room that you would be at work in our hearts, either reminding us of our conviction that we must choose Christ, we must persevere. Or if there's any here who has not confessed Christ, we pray that you would be at work in their hearts so that they may choose life now for the first time. If there are those who are wavering, we pray that you would pull back those, snatch them from the dangers of hell, remind them of the goodness and gentleness and kindness of your love. Keep before us all your promises Our days on this earth are so short compared to an eternity of life with you in heaven. Keep this image of our future before our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen.